Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. It's one of Connecticut's biggest maritime attractions and an internationally renowned boatyard. We visit Mystic Seaport Museum and go behind the scenes to see some of the thousands of items they have that the public don't always get to see. Plus, we take a look at some other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Museums are great places to visit any time of the year, and here in eastern Connecticut we have some of the very best in the state and even the nation. I had the privilege to visit Mystic Seaport Museum's Collections Research Centre and get a behind-the-scenes look at some of the many artefacts that don't always get seen. My guides were Paulo Pecco, Vice President of Collections and Research, and Crystal Rose, Senior Curator. So we are in a fabulous room, which you know everything about. So just talk to us about what it, where we are within the Collections Research Centre and what is it that we're looking at? Well, I know a tiny bit about a lot of the objects. <laughs> and so in this particular room, this is where we have all the materials that are not part of those other collections that Paul just mentioned. So, um, you know, there's the, the plans and the boats and the um, Rosenfeld photography and the film and video. And then a lot of the other materials that don't fit into those categories go in this room. And within everything in this room, uh, things are separated out by the type of material that they are. So I'll kind of go through the big categories of what we have in here. There um, are ship's carvings and figureheads. We have about 70 figureheads carvings. There are models and half models, so about 2,100 of those all together. And like I said, those are full models and half models and models and bottles and miniature models and all kinds of interesting things. There are about another 200,000 plus photographs in the general photograph collection. There are textiles, nautical instruments, navigation instruments, paintings, lithographs. We have a large lithograph collection. Other, uh, so oil paintings and watercolors, acrylics, all different kinds. And then the section that you see here that most people are interested in is kind of general collection. And so it starts with the obvious, which if you're standing here, you would see is a lot of whale bones. So these are sperm whale jaw bones that you see here. And all the drawers down below, there are sperm whale teeth that are carved on. So this is known as scrimshaw. Scrimshaw is the carving on the bone or ivory of any marine mammal at sea on a whale ship by a whaler. So those drawers are full of that. There's also walrus tusks. And then it just kind of meanders back. And so, you know, you have all of these like parts of different marine mammals here. And then as you move back, you get into other strange parts like whale kidney stones and eyeballs and shells and all kinds of things. And then you've got tools and instruments, and it goes all the way back to lighting and silver, so all kinds of really cool stuff. But that's just kind of a skimming the surface 
of what's in here really fast. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit more about, okay. obviously, some more of that. So thank you for that very, very expert and, uh, and sort of like uh, condensed version of, of what's in here. One of the things I did want to ask you is I understand that the museum is going to embark on a digitizing, so like a huge digitizing project. How big a challenge is that going to be? Because you sort of just touched upon some of the photographs here. And as you said, that's not even the half of it. This is a big project. And, and sort of why do you guys want to do that? Why do you want to digitize it? Well, first off, we've been digitizing for a very long time. Since Paul Apeco has been here for a very long time, and Paul and another librarian started digitizing things, Many, a couple of other librarians I can think of started digitizing things in the 90s. In the 90s. Yeah. And so I would say that Mystic Seaport Museum, in my humble opinion, is pretty cutting edge as far as digitizing materials. And so there are hundreds of thousands of things online in different formats, both on research.mysticseaport.org and on the educator's website. So a little, little bit of different ways to access the materials. One of the websites is actually much better for scholars and people who really know what they're looking for and can drill down on the research website. One is more geared towards educators and students. But so we are hoping to digitize more things. We're hiring catalogers who are going to be doing scanning and all kinds of things. So, you know, the idea is to make as much of this as accessible to the public as possible and to also to be able to license our materials um, so that they could be used by different groups, you know, magazines, journalists, movies, maybe, all, all kinds of different a lot, things. A lot of decorators actually use quite a bit of the, our nice. Rosenfeld collection. Uh, the pieces show up in hotels and occasionally in movies. You'll see them as background and so on. So, yeah, so uh, trying to monetize what we can from it just to help pay our way in the uh, in the museum here is it also another effort obviously to get people to be able to see this because you've only got so much space we'll be talking a little bit later about the fact that there is going to be a big capital campaign going on to actually convert the rossi mill into hopefully a large exhibition space but i mean you've got so much here i mean you would literally need warehouses and warehouses to to show this off wouldn't you yeah correct because i mean most museums are like us where they show maybe five percent ten percent you know, what they have stored in the back like we have here. So, yeah, to take as much as we have back here and put it out on exhibit all at once, yeah, we'd need more acreage than we have across the river, which is about 20 acres or so. Right. How exciting is that as well, to be able to digitize it? Because I know you said you've been doing it for a while now, so you are cutting edge, which is great to hear. But how exciting is that for you, the people that work here every day? Because you get to see it, and now... More of us are going to get to see it. It is exciting, but I have been doing that for 10 years. So it's, you know, spent the last 10 years actually digitizing stuff monthly to make accessible for educators and students. So, I mean, it's just as exciting now as it was then. But a lot of it is has been happening and will continue to happen. And so, you know, the other thing I just wanted to say, too, about showing things, not necessarily digitally, but a lot of the stuff that's in this room that we're talking about does go on exhibit. We change exhibits, you know, yearly. And so we think a lot about the things that are on exhibit, switching them out, putting in new material, and also about the care of the objects. You know, it's not good for certain types of objects to be on display for so long. So we're really thoughtful about the way that we switch out things and try to think of new things that people want to see. So just want to give slight listeners a sense of the room we're in. It's a, a huge room with, so like, you know, quite 
nice lighting in here, but it, it's very temperature controlled. I've got a coat on because I came in from the outside, but I'm actually quite glad I've got it on because it's very temperature controlled, which I'm guessing, again, is all part of helping to preserve, make sure that things, you know, don't get mold on them and all sorts of, right. uh, of nasty things like that, which, uh, you know, could quickly destroy things. Right. So you're correct. It is, it's actually not too cold. It's about 68 degrees and about 40 to 50 percent relative humidity. The humidity is actually really important. We don't want any humidity to build up in this room because of what you just said, mold and also expansion and contraction of different materials like wood or bone um, could probably be influenced by that as well. So we try to keep the temperature and the humidity steady and steadiness is really the, the most important part of that. And the other thing we do is we have UV filters on the lights so that we, um, you know, textiles and manuscripts and, you know, uh, any sort of paper documents can be really, can be easily damaged by light. So we try to keep UV filters on. We try to keep the lights off. We try to minimize handling. We handle certain materials with gloves, certain materials with clean hands. I'm probably forgetting other efforts. But the idea is to try to make this last for hundreds of years, you know, long beyond our lifetime so that it'll be available for people to see at any time. So Crystal, we're looking at a drawer of beautifully carved, is this walrus tusks? Yes, these are walrus tusks. And these two pieces here in the center, I actually have been doing a student program and I do it with adults too. I really do it with anyone. It's quite fun. And I call it the Arctic Mystery Program. So these two tusks have some really distinctive designs on them. And you can see on the one here on the left, first of all, they look to be matching tusks. We could assume that. There on the left, there's all kinds of Arctic animals. And you see kind of a crackly pattern, which I'm guessing the artist probably wanted to show ice. And I'm going to carefully turn it over. So there are dramatic scenes on the back of both of the pieces. This one has a like a, a caribou that is being attacked by dogs and it's got a polar bear and a seal and then on the other one you see on the front you see a whaling ship and on the back uh, oh it also says good luck Jeanette that's pretty um, important on the back you see a polar bear fight uh, these men and dogs fighting with a polar bear and there's a dead polar bear on the ground and one of the things I thought was really interesting about it when I first saw it is that it was broken before it came to us And so it says Jeanette, August 20-something, and there's no date. And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. Let's start looking up. Let's see what Jeanette this is and what story this is. And believe it or not, there are multiple vessels that went into the Arctic named Jeanette. So so it's kind of – so we have to do a little bit of work to narrow it down. So I do a program with students – where we investigate the two pieces. We look at all of the scenes. We look at the type of ship that it is because it's actually carved on the front of one of the pieces. And together we try to solve the mystery. And I bring in other uh, primary and secondary sources. And I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to give away the ending, but probably, gosh, about eight years ago now I made, I didn't discover this, but I one, one night late searching on the internet, I discovered that the San Francisco Maritime Museum also has two very similar tusks, also about uh, a ship named Jeanette. So I actually got to go there and see those tusks, which is kind of cool. But yeah, it's a fun, we we can do all kinds of things like that with students and uh, with the public. You know, all of these objects are primary sources. You can learn so much from every single object in this room. Everything has a story. So that's one of the really amazing things about collections. We live in an age where very little seems to make us go wow these days. But just looking here, it is a wow moment. 
What do the kids take away from this and how do they react? Because this is stuff that they've never seen and so many kids are are unlikely to see it as well. So to be able to come here and be privileged to meet people like yourself and Paul who have so much knowledge and then to see these beautiful historic items, what's their sort of reaction when they see it? You know, it's a mixture. I'll be really honest. You know, some students have a glazed over look. But I would say I would say 95% of the time, there's a lot of wow. There's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of, you know, wow, I didn't know history could be this fun. I once had a student, a high school student, tell me that he thought that primary sources were just copies of old documents written by old dead white guys, and that this proved that it could be a lot more than that. So I thought that was a pretty, that was a pretty exciting thing to hear high school students say about recognizing kind of the diversity of primary source material and that it's not just copies of documents written by old guys. So, so yeah, so it's, I would say it's definitely a mixture, but for the most part, the students get into it. There's a lot of ooh and ah, there's a lot of uh, detective work that goes on and they feel like detectives in the program so it's um so it's kind of fun paul you're going to talk to us you've got an object in your hand this is one of your favorite items explain to us what you have and why is it a favorite item because you've got (laughs) thousands of them to to like so 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 our scrimshaw collection a lot of it is pretty typical types of things that you would see you know guys would go out and they'd you know do a, a picture of the boat that they're on or picture of a lady, you know, all kinds of things, places they visited and so on. Well, this guy did a couple of strange things on a few different teeth. And one of the pictures is actually a chicken in bloomers. And the reason this is one of my favorites is just because, one, it's, it's quite goofy. It is. Pretty interesting looking. But I don't know, probably five years ago or so, I was giving a tour in here to some college students from Long Island. And I opened the drawer, and the one student saw this, and he asked if he could take a picture because he loves chickens. And I said, sure, go ahead. And then about maybe two months later, I got an email from him, and there was a picture of the chicken. He sent it to me, except he had gotten a tattoo of it on his ankle. And I thought that was quite amazing. I also told him, don't tell his mother where he found that chicken, because I'm sure she would come after me for that. But I just think it's just a a wonderful piece. And And Paul, can I add to that? I could be wrong, but that chicken tooth is also featured in the Cobweb Palace. Mm -hmm. So the Cobweb Palace was a saloon in San Francisco where the saloon owner, his name was Abe Warner, would accept scrimshaw and sailor's art and all kinds of interesting things um, as payment for uh, food and beverage. And that tooth is on display behind Abe Warner in all of the pictures of the Cobweb Palace. And uh, we actually have, I think, four items that that were on display in the Cobweb Palace. So this is like not long after the gold rush and Abe Warner is exactly what you would imagine this long white beard and the cobweb palace was called that because um, he did not believe in killing spiders and so there were just enormous almost curtains of spider webs hanging from the ceiling so if you google cobweb palace you will see those photographs and that chicken and bloomers is right in there or if we can find the student we'll find a tattoo on their leg that's right yeah and, and as crystal was saying you know there were a number of other pieces that were at the uh, cobweb palace too that actually hung on the wall and we actually have the pieces here with a little hole drilled through them where they actually hung from it and the one guy that made those was the only only um uh, scrim shander that we know that came ashore and did it professionally too so it's pretty cool that they made it here to the east from San Francisco, considering what happened to San Francisco in the early 1900s, you know. So it's, it's nice that they made it safely east and live in our 
our possession here. Question for either of you. Looking at these beautiful pieces of art, and they are just truly just stunning, is it carved and then ink? I mean, what's the process? What do you know about the process? Can you just give us a, like a quick layman's guide of how it's done? I'll give you the quick, the quick and dirty, especially because I've done this with a lot of kids, not with real teeth, but we actually do it with resin teeth and with kids. But tooth, when it first comes out of the jaw, out of the gum, is really, for most of the teeth, they're pretty bumpy and rough and discolored. And so a sailor would actually sometimes soak it in salty water, seawater, for a period and then would sand it down, sometimes using shark skin. And once it was sanded down, which took quite a long time to get it to a really smooth, shiny surface that you would then want to carve on, you would use whatever sharp tool you had available. You could have actually brought scrimshaw tools with you if you knew what you were doing and you'd been to sea before. Otherwise, you might use a jackknife, an awl, a sailing needle, whatever you had. Um, You scratch into the surface of the tooth and then you would put in some sort of ink. And again, this is this is art with found materials for the most part. So you might have had access to some sort of real ink, like India ink, but you might have also used lamp black or soot or tobacco juice or tea. What else am I thinking that they used, Paul? I mean, there, there would be um, berry juice, berry you know, juice. that kind yeah, of thing. Anything that would stain, right. pretty much. People always ask squid, and I've not, I don't know about squid, and I've done some squid ink experiments, and I do not. My personal thoughts probably no. I teeth from squid ink when I had a squid ink pasta in, in, uh, in Venice. So, you know, I tried to tie-dye a shirt with squid ink, so it doesn't work. <laughs> so another thing that we do here in collections is we help to support the exhibit process. So right now we have an exhibit that is opening on May 28th that is called Storyboats, and it is mostly as you could guess, stories about boats, boat stories. And so it is 18 boats in the collection. But what you might not realize is that there are a lot of supporting artifacts that go along with those boats. So um, over here in collections, we have selected some artifacts that help to tell the story of each of those boats that are going to be in the exhibit. So I have a couple of things on the table here in front of me. And the reason they're out is because um, we do, there's a lot of preparation that goes into preparing the cases. So first off, the cases are spectacular themselves. They're they're, um, really wonderful state-of-the-art cases. And every single object, uh, you know, is measured. A condition report is done where we we try to note exactly what the object is like before it goes in exhibit. And then we do the same thing when it comes off of of exhibit. And we work with our exhibits team to actually create mounts for all of the pieces. So what you see in front of you right here are two cases that we've been working on. One tells the story of um, Steve Callahan, who his boat uh, sank as he was crossing the Atlantic and he drifted for 76 days across the Atlantic. So we have here things that belong to him, which he donated to us. Um, So this is a sextant that he made out of three pencils, which is pretty amazing. His watch, his sea survival book that he kept uh, in a Tupperware container. And this is a picture of him after he was rescued, the pants he wore after he was rescued, and then many of the illustrations that he did for his book, A Drift, that he wrote after he was rescued. So it's an amazing story, and it's really cool that we have these objects, plus his diary that's not here on the table at the moment, to be able to tell that story. And then over here we have some materials that belonged to John Boxtos, who was an explorer. There's a a great uh, National Geographic article about him, and he traversed much of the Northwest Passage in um, an open umiak. And so these are some materials, including his binoculars and his parka, which is outlined in uh, wolf rough and rabbit fur, which is kind of cool. So all these things get really well documented, mounts made for everything. They're put in very special cases, and they will go across the street in just about two weeks. 
So Kevin O'Leary is the Vice President of Development and Marketing here at Mystic Seaport Museum. Kevin, you and the staff have taken us around the Collections Research Centre, the CRC, which is not an area which a lot of people get an opportunity to see. But uh, thank you ever so much for that. We've just scratched the surface, really, of this incredible collection. What's the future looking like for Mystic Seaport Museum you know, you're new, there's a new president, there's always a need to push museums forward, to push them further, and I know there's some big plans. Talk us through, you know, some of what it is, some of the vision that between you and the rest of the team here, what does it look like for Mystic Seaport Museum? The big effort on the part of any institution like ours is connecting with with as wide an audience as possible on a cultural level. How are we relevant? Right. On the surface, it's, it's old school. It's a museum. We have artifacts. You, people come and read cards, and maybe there's some experiential element to it. Um, but for in this day and age, we can be stereotyped as a bit old school. But as you've seen here, we have a tremendous collection of archives and intellectual property. Just the still and moving images alone account for, I don't know, hours, days, weeks of, of content. One of our big initiatives is to be begin to methodically catalog, digitize, meta-tag, and make accessible our collection. And what does that mean? That means establishing a digital online vault that is accessible to the public at large. You can search by whatever means you want to. Hopefully, the goal is in pretty quick order, come up with results that are relevant to what you're looking for. You're looking for yachts between 1940 to 1970, sailing off of the coast of Mystic, off of Newport, Rhode Island, off the coast of Spain, or what have you, and zip, ideally, relevant content comes up. Not just artifacts here, but still in moving images. Like I said, we've just scratched the surface with you here today and some of the other staff here. When people think about Mystic Seaport Museum, really they're seeing like, maybe a tenth of of what actually you do. I mean, we've seen like restoration work, we've seen engines, all manner of things, which, you know, Ultimately, I know that the museum wants to be able to like, show more of it, and you've, you've said, obviously, about digitizing it. Is that something that the museum wants to really get across to people is it's not a one-and-done thing? You need to keep coming back. Sure. I think, you know, I think a big part of that is just being better about telling the story of what happens here on a daily basis. We're making a big effort just on our social media channels to show people what is happening collections, what's happening in kids' camps, what's happening at the shipyard. I'm a big believer in that sort of sequential storytelling. I think like any sprawling institution like ours, it's hard to sort of pigeonhole us that we are a thing. I mean, we are rooted in maritime history. That is who we are at our core. But different people connect with us on different levels. That We have ships enthusiasts. We have people who take sailing lessons here. We have people who come to our world-class exhibitions. We have researchers. I sort of use the IKEA analogy. You know, we're not IKEA. It's still, you don't come in one door and follow a strict path. We want people to discover us on their terms, find out um, hopefully something that resonates to them, and grow their relationship with the museum from there. And as bizarre as it sounds, you don't have to like boats to come to Mystic Seaport Museum either. No, you don't. But we hope that uh, after you visit, you'll like them a little bit more. Kevin, it's been great talking to you, and thank you to you and the team for taking us around, as I say, just a very small part of this amazing collection here at the Mystic Seaport Museum. It's our pleasure. Come back anytime.
And the Storyboats exhibition mentioned in the interview starts May 28th, where you can discover amazing stories behind some of the museum's 450 small watercraft. Details and tickets can be found at the museum's website, mysticseaport.org. The warmer weather is here, and it's time to give your plants some health care. From mulching to aeration to growth regulator, remedial and preventative treatments against fungus, as well as insects like the spotted lanternfly and gypsy moth. Don't be reactive, be proactive, and keep your trees and plants in tip-top condition to avoid long-term health problems. Find more details about plant health care services. Call 860-234-4041 or visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently, sponsored by... Every number tells a story. A true story. Connecticut by the Numbers explores breakthroughs and challenges, issues and answers. Behind the headlines, across the state, follow the numbers. Connecticut news that counts ctnumbers.news As the town of Plainfield continues to deal with a recent cyber attack that affected the town and police computer systems, new evidence is emerging the situation could have been avoided. Trave Harmon is a resident of Plainfield and the CEO of Triton Technologies, an IT security company. Harmon says he inspected the town's computer systems a few years back and provided a report to the town and wrote to the first selectman a year ago when President Biden warned about increased cyber attacks on the U.S. and says despite all of this, nothing was done. I've been there at the finance hearings begging for servers, begging for workstations, begging for more security. It didn't happen. And so it is a systematic collapse of lack of funding, lack of proper security, and just not overall any kind of security policy or methodology. Harmon says no one has ever contacted town residents about the cyber attack or whether their personal data may have been breached. Can I say for certain? Absolutely not. Have I been told by people who have had it? Yes. But the problem is, is that we don't have any more details. As a citizen, my details are in there. I don't know what they are. Am I expecting a car to, to suddenly be on my credit report? We've got nothing. And so that becomes a problem. Connecticut East reached out repeatedly to Plainfield's first selectman's office and provided copies of Harmon's correspondence to the town, but has also received no reply. The cost to rectify the damage caused by the cyber attack on the town's computer systems is estimated at around $350,000. The Connecticut Department of Transportation has launched a new initiative called Transit CX to find out what residents want from their public transport in the state. Alicia Late is the Customer Experience Transportation Supervising Planner for the DOT and says much has changed since COVID-19. Since the pandemic, public transportation is going through this shift. We have individuals who are teleworking. We have individuals that have needed us throughout the pandemic and also changing travel patterns. So we really want to take a look at is what we're providing meeting the needs of our customers. And then we're going to take all of that information and create this vision. So what do we envision public transportation to look like in our near future and future? DOT will be holding pop-up events at transportation hubs across the state until early fall to to discuss bus, rail, paratransit and dial-a-ride services. 
Connecticut residents can also provide their feedback to the DOT via their website transitcx.com. The DOT also unveiled new electric trains that will run on the Shoreline East Line from New Haven to New London recently that will improve passenger comfort and provide a faster and cleaner travel service, replacing old diesel trains. 225 Waterford High School students got a reality check at a Credit for Life fair recently. The event, sponsored by Liberty Bank, projected the students into the future after they had graduated at age 25 to give them a taste of what their life might be like buying a car, getting a job and balancing a budget. Pam Days-Lukatish is the Community Outreach Officer for Liberty Bank and says this year they're using new technology to make the experience even more real. We're really excited this year because we have a new app that we're using and the kids can bring this information home with them and they can show all of their choices that they made from their career to their housing choices to how do they manage a credit card and how do they choose transportation, all the different life choices I have to make. Jack Lathrop is an 18-year-old student at Waterford High and says it opened his eyes. I definitely think it's helpful because it's like eye-opening experience about how much real things cost and how you have to budget your money. I've already dropped below $500 in my savings account and I'm only 15 minutes in, so I've got to learn how to select through my different accounts differently and make better options and choices, I guess. The phone app allowed for unexpected situations like identity theft to be dropped into the student's life situation in real time, giving them a real sense of what happens in the world today. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week. And you can listen to the show again on our social platforms on demand and by asking your smart speaker to play Connecticut East This Week podcast. And please like, follow and share on your social media too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.